Well, next Sunday marks the beginning of the season of Advent as we look forward to those, those times when we remember the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there are generally sermons in Advent that talk about the coming of the Lord. And Christmas decorations are already being sold and out and about. And soon we'll be seeing those pictures of a manger. We might even see manger scenes with figures in place that have at the center of them uh, an image of a baby supposed to be representing the baby Jesus. And that's how people will go through Christmas, particularly those who are not grounded well in Scripture. That's what they're going to focus on during this, this time as we approach Christmas Day. And they will see a little baby, they, they will remember a little baby, innocent, uh, unobtrusive, undemanding, and very calm and peaceful. And when Christmas is gone and all the decorations are gone, many of those people will have no memory, no recollection of what Christmas is about. And even for us, when we get into that Advent season and we begin to think about the birth of Jesus, we too remember him coming as a small little baby, innocent, unprotected, dependent upon other human beings, particularly his parents, to provide for him and to protect him. No one else would. He was dependent as a child for help from those around him. Now, uh, Georgette and I, for last Christmas, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but we, we had our DNA done. And I wasn't too surprised about my DNA, but I was very surprised about Georgette's. Um, her pedigree is not, it's varied. And had I known this before we got married, I still would have married her. It wouldn't have mattered. But it would be rather interesting, and I know we can't go back and do it, but to have Jesus's DNA. I wonder what it would look like. You know, we have a lot of those kinds of, of questions about Jesus as the Son of God and the things that, that happen, but what would his DNA look like? Half human, half spirit? I, what's the spirit's DNA? I don't think there is any. It, this, we're talking about a complete and utter unique circumstances in God's history and his revelation of salvation towards men. And we have a knowledge and an understanding of what it's all about. We read from the confession, from the catechism, uh, those questions and answers that describe to us, and, and we affirm in those answers, uh, who Jesus is and why he came and how he came and why he had to come as he came. And we acknowledge 
all of those truths. For people outside of the church, they don't understand all of those truths. Without the Spirit of God, it's impossible to understand the things of God. We can logically and rationally understand them, but to believe them and to have affirmation of them requires a change in here, and that requires the Holy Spirit. And so when men look at the baby Jesus, when they see him, that's what they like. They want someone who was under their control and their influence. And men depict that when they begin to talk about things that happen in the world, and they focus on the character and the love of God. And if God was loving, why would those bad things that we see happening in the world take place? Why would he not prevent them from happening? And so man likes a God that's made in his image, not a man that's made in the image of God. And people talk about what they would do if they were God, how they would change things, how they would alter how things come out in the history of things and and the things that we see. It's the, in essence, the creature Judging the Creator. If I were God, this is what I would do. And that demonstrates the rebellious heart that is within man that says, God's not doing it right. There's a different way. There's a better way than what we see happening in the world. And why doesn't God do it my way? Obviously, my way is better. But what men fail to see is the sinfulness that's in their hearts, again, because the Spirit of God does not live within them. And they can't understand the truth, nor can they accept the truth. And so they want a God that is loving and merciful and kind, but cannot see a God who must also punish sin who cannot stand in darkness, as John says, but stands in complete and utter light. That's where men must stand if they are going to stand with God. And if darkness is in their heart, they can't stand with God nor understand the words of God. And so this is the dilemma that men are in. Some people say it's a dilemma that God is in. It really isn't. It's a dilemma that men are in because we know from the Word of God that, first of all, God must punish sin. We read that from the catechism questions. He promised it to man in the beginning in the garden. One commandment of thou shalt not. There weren't ten, there was one. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that one commandment, man broke. And as a result, God said, the day that you eat of it, what will happen? You shall surely die. It's not a possibility. It's not a suggestion. 
It is a commandment and a promise from God that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Don't eat. If you do, you die. That's pretty simple. It's not complicated. It's not shrouded in mystery. It's pretty straightforward. His commandments must be obeyed or there are consequences. There is the wrath of God. In Acts chapter 17, we read this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by rising him, raising him from the dead. So there is a day that is appointed which God will judge the world through the Lord. We have that promise in the New Testament. There is coming a judgment, and God has promised that it's going to come. It's still future. We're still waiting for that time, as opposed to some who might think otherwise. And we read from Exodus chapter 34, when Moses had to cut the tablets because he had thrown them down in anger because the people had rebelled against the Lord. Moses was gone for a little while. No one was there to lead them. And they fell into the sin of idolatry and forsaking God. And they had to be recarved Although Moses had to do that, and God wrote upon them the words that he had given to Moses and said he would by no means pardon the guilty. God's wrath is upon sin, and he cannot overlook it. And what men fail to see without the Holy Spirit is this is where they are. They are sinful men who don't deserve God's mercy and love, They don't deserve God fixing everything and making it easy. What they really deserve is hard times because they deserve the wrath of God. And if God does that, if God were to do that, God would be doing nothing other than eliminating darkness so that His light would shine clearly and brightly in the world. Because if we say we have no sin, if that's not who we are, we make God out to be a liar. And the truth is not in us. And if God does not punish sin, if He does not bring judgment against unrighteousness, according to His Word, He would be a liar. He can't and should not let the guilty go unpunished. Unpunished, He would not be just. He would be going contrary to His character. Indeed, He would not be God if He lets sin go unpunished. And the focus of most people in the world, those without the Spirit want to focus on God's love and God's mercy and not the fact that He must be a just God and punish sin. 
He was merciful in the garden by allowing man to continue to live, although dying, experiencing death now, physically, as it would progress through his body, promising a Messiah and a Savior, someone that would come and change everything, put things back together again. It happened again in the flood. God showing mercy, wanting to wipe men from the face of the earth, but saving Noah and his family. And poor Noah, even after everything was gone, transgressed the Lord once he's back on dry ground. And to Israel, as God called them to be his special people over and over and over again, showed them mercy when they deserved his wrath as they repented from their sin. And then to us in Jesus, to us who have been revealed, as Paul tells the Ephesians, we now know the mystery of what God had held in secret for so long because He is God and hadn't revealed it to anyone, revealing to us that we get to be included in God's people making us one with the Jews, one body of Christ, His fullness, that is, the church. And so we've been included if we indeed believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith and trust is put in Him alone. So we need God's love and God's mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't command it, but God gives it to us. And men forget this part of God's Word. And forgetting to focus on the fact that we don't deserve it, and what we really deserve is the wrath of God. And so we have a problem. Some call it a problem for God, but it's our problem. On the one hand... All we deserve is God's wrath. We deserve His justice. But on the other hand, we also read of God's mercy and His loving kindness to generation after generation. And how do we bring these two together? How do we join them together? Some say it's God's problem. Here He has the height of his creation, man created in his image, deserving nothing but his wrath, well, how is he going to be just and show him mercy? Well, God is God, and God had a plan from the very beginning, and it's up to us to uncover it and see it as it's given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't have a dilemma In Jesus Christ, we see God's mercy and God's justice meeting and coming together. God determining that He is going to save the crown of His creation and that He is going to do it in a very just and a very powerful way because all of His ways are righteous and just and merciful and loving. And so in the end, what God must do is He must punish sin and save man 
from his wrath. How does he do it? Well, we have to understand, first of all, that men owe a debt to God. Men must pay God for their sinfulness and their disobedience. No one else does. We confess that in the question and answers of the catechism. We owe God a debt for violating His glory and His holiness with our sin. And therefore, it is men who must pay for the penalty of sin and incur the wrath of God. Men must pay it. The problem is, we don't have anything to pay it with. We can't pay this debt of owing back to God after stealing His glory by dishonoring Him through our disobedience, through original sin, and through our own sinfulness. We don't have that to pay. Everything that we already have belongs to God already. What else could we give Him that would repay Him for our disobedience? Absolutely nothing. But God does. God has the resources to pay our debt. And how He does that is through His Son. He would make someone, He would give to us someone as promised in the garden, someone who was God and someone who was man, the very Son of God, and the two would come together and is what the incarnation and Christmas are about. God giving to us that, that great gift of His Son to us, one who is truly God and one who is truly man. Turn with me to, to Romans chapter 3. So God providing for us and giving to us someone who could pay the debt, who had the resources, yet is one of us. Because it must be a man who pays the debt. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Paul, writing to the Romans there, says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is just and the justifier, just because the wrath, His wrath, was poured out on His Son. A man, indeed the God-man, the very Son of God, and He bore the wrath that we all deserve as men, as women. Yet able to justify us because now that that has happened, those who have faith and who trust in the Lord Jesus, He can now justify and say, you are forgiven and stand righteous before us. You see, it was a reward given to the Lord Jesus for His obedience to the commands of the Father in place of our disobedience. But Jesus doesn't need a reward. He has no need of it. He is God in the flesh. And He gives us His reward through faith and trust in Him. He gives to us that which He earned through His obedience, that which Adam lost in His disobedience. And He gives it to us. And He knows that we need it. And He knows what He was doing, knew what He was doing when He came in human form came as an infant and came to us as our Lord and Savior. There is no darkness in God. There is nothing but light. And He can't stand the darkness. He fills the darkness with light and He fills those who are in darkness with the light of the gospel. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And He's come to give that light to us. And when we get that light, the darkness in us is pushed out as we have faith and trust in Him. And for those, particularly in the world, who don't understand this great truth and only see the bad things that happen in the world, and want to blame God for them and say He can't be a loving God if He allowed this terrible thing to happen like an earthquake or a flood or even wars, don't know and don't understand what terrible thing He allowed to happen to His Son that men might have hope beyond this world and the terrible things that we see, and to know that they would have life eternal. Ask them about that terrible thing that God allowed to happen to His Son so that we might have that hope and assurance of eternal life, that we think beyond that Christmas scene in the manger where there's this little baby, this little infant that seems so innocent 
so unprotected, so controllable, but who grew up to be the very Son of God in the flesh. That we take it beyond Christmas and this time of the year where we only think about Him coming in that little infant form, but realizing and praising God for the fact that He grew up as the greatest gift ever given to man that God might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He's not a liar. There is coming a day for judgment. But those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ don't fear that day. We look forward to that day when we would go to be with the Lord or that day when He will return and establish His kingdom forever. God's justice and God's mercy comes to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God be praised.